Welcome back. Um, so, just a word about myself, um, or a few words about myself. Uh, so, I'm uh, professionally I'm a psychologist, and I started meditating in 1974, uh, right at the tail end of college. I grew up um, in Southern California, mainly in a decent, nurturing, basic family in the suburbs of L.A. in West Covina. And um, in a very ordinary background, and for some reason, I still wonder what the basis of that reason was. Uh, at the end of uh, college, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to check out Eastern philosophy and religion. And that just kicked the doors wide open uh, about the possibilities in consciousness of a really stable contentment and love and happiness based on an underlying uh, recognition of the impermanence of things and the fact that if we try to hold on to what's changing, we're going to create friction and suffering for ourselves and other people. And that's kind of where it started for me. Uh, at the time in the human potential movement, which was my home base, did a lot of wild and intense things. Psychology seemed really boring, you know, rats, mazes, meh. But I finally realized that maybe there was something useful there. So I ended up getting a near master's in developmental psychology. I worked with kids and then um, went on, got a master's in family system psychology and then a clinical psychology PhD. While along the way, always being really, really interested in contemplative practice. And along the way as well, I'd been very interested in how the nervous system and the brain is in the mix, but there wasn't much information. There was some, but it wasn't that useful. Starting around 20 years ago, uh, there was a avalanche of information emerging about the nervous system and the brain, the three pounds of tofu-like tissue inside the coconut, as it were. And that got me deeply interested in what could be called applied neurodharma. I know that's lame, but it's like you imagine the intersection of three circles, psychology, brain science, and contemplative practice, and all the traditions of the world, particularly the one I'm most at home in, which is the teachings of the Buddha uh, in the uh, the roots of Buddhism, the so-called Theravadan tradition. Uh, so if you imagine the intersection of those three circles, psychology, brain science, contemplative wisdom, really, really neat stuff there. And then that led me into uh, participating here at Spirit Rock. That led me into eventually writing Buddha's Brain, which I wrote over 10 years ago. It's kind of remarkable to appreciate that. And now some books later, here I am. So that's kind of my own background. And the reason I say all that is that I have a real interest in practice. That's really interesting to me. I'd rather read the saints than the theologians. So to that point, um, at a Monday night class uh 20, 30 years ago, when Sylvia Borstein, one of the major teachers here, was guest teaching for Jack Cornfield, she stunned the whole room of longtime meditators when she asked a very simple question. What about enlightenment? Whoa. And there are ways in which practice can be simplified as be present and be nice. Well, that's a lot better than the alternative. It's great. But the Buddha had something in mind more than that. That may be where we begin, being present, being kinder to ourselves as well as to others. But it's not where we end. 
Uh, there's a kind of classic quotation uh, from the early teachings of the Buddha in which he says essentially the point of this spiritual life, the point of this life of practice in, in his tradition that he was teaching um, is not uh, mystical experiences per se. It's not uh, becoming famous. Uh, it's not um, you know becoming popular. The purpose, the heartwood of this practice, the most important aspect of it, the point of it all, is, as he said, that unshakable liberation of mind. The highest happiness, which is peace. So I want to talk about awakening tonight. Awakening as both the result of practice and a method of practice. I think back on my background in rock climbing. I've done a lot of rock climbing over the years, less lately. There's a saying, there are old climbers and there are bold climbers. There are very few old, bold climbers. So <laughs> I'm an old climber. Anyway, so, but one of the things I, I appreciated as a kind of, you know, I was like a high-level intermediate climber, I would watch people who are really expert and very talented athletically, and I'd see how they moved, sort of like human geckos over the rock. And then I would imagine, what was it be like to be them? Right, I kind of reverse engineer in some way, or I I would try to you know embodiment, you know imaginative embodiment, what it's like to be them, and then I would be climbing better. So there's a place in which we look out and we see people who are exemplars of something. They've really developed something we care about, and then we imagine our way into their way of being, and into the causes and conditions that stabilize, that establish their way of being so that increasingly we can inhabit it ourselves. We can grow our way into that. We can look out there and we can see people who are very far along in practice, including in the the Buddhist tradition, which is where I'm, I'm sitting here especially tonight, and we can see that they have cultivated they have developed a number of qualities. Uh, you may know that in the Buddhist tradition, there's the eightfold path, the cultivation of right view, right intention, right livelihood, speech, um, action, mindfulness, effort, concentration. Um, there's the cultivation of what are called sometimes the Brahma Viharas, the dwelling places, Viharas, of the divine abodes, which we can inhabit ourselves. Compassion, kindness, happiness for the happiness of others, and equanimity. We develop these things. We also might cultivate uh, what are called the seven factors of awakening, of um, mindfulness and investigation, effort, tranquility, joy, um, concentration, and equanimity as well. So we develop these things. It's a path of development, but very, very importantly, One way to also understand it is that in this developmental progressive process, we clear away what's between us and who we already are. Whatever you want to call it. The divine spark, bodhicitta, Buddha nature, true nature, non-dual awareness, who we already are. And we can recognize in those who inspire us and those who's, who call us to, uh, to, um, to be more in that way, moment to moment, we can recognize those qualities inside ourselves as well. So in my own journey, and I'm an 
on a journey for quite a while, um, more and more I've been reflecting on seven qualities, qualities of awakening, ways of being that are also practices that I see out there in the sages and saints, the great teachers, people throughout history, people in the world today, and honestly, you can recognize in uh, certain people who don't have their own TV show, you know, they've never been on Oprah, and yet in their own way, they are, are living a saintliness, I'll put it like that. I was with a friend for a walk uh, yesterday, she's toward, you know, kind of getting older and older and older and really facing, facing um, kind of the eventual fading of her own life. And when I came home, I told my wife, you know, I feel like I went for a walk with the mystic next door. Right? She is just more and more transparent uh, to kind of the ultimate. So we can look out there and see these qualities in, in people, known and unknown, who really exemplify uh, what we care about. And we can see those qualities in various ways inside ourselves. So tonight, I'd like to talk through seven qualities of awakening as both the fruit of practice and the path of practice. As they say in Tibet, you can take the fruit as the path. And as I talk about this, I really invite you to feel your way into this experientially. It's easy to kind of relate to this stuff theoretically or theologically, hocus-pocus, Instead, to really come into what's the feeling of that for me and to recognize it in yourself. And then through recognizing it, increasingly stabilize. So I'd like to talk through these seven qualities. The first is, and I'll I'll describe them as practices because I'm a practice guy, steadying the mind. Steadying the mind. Mindfulness, stability of presence, steadiness in your own place. Each one of these seven can be tasted. We've tasted all of these, almost all of us, if not all of us, have tasted every one of them. I'll go through them. You'll recognize them. And each of them can be developed to to a full extent, can be perfected. For example, steadiness of mind can be developed through the right concentration element in the Eightfold Path, the jhanas, these non-ordinary states of consciousness, and even further into extraordinary states of meditative absorption. This is the territory of steadying the mind. It's foundational. If we are scattered and distracted, we are not any good for others or for ourselves. Second, warming the heart. This is the material, this is the territory of compassion, kindness, loving kindness, love. Uh, Recent scholarship suggests that the Buddha taught, actually, that love, when fully developed, is a complete path of awakening. Love, warming the heart. Third quality is what I call resting in fullness. This is the sense of equanimity, or more deeply, a movement from the second noble truth of craving that creates suffering, which in a neurobiological sense is a drive state. Animals crave. 
we crave because there's an underlying sense of something missing, something wrong, a deficit or disturbance in terms of our needs for safety or satisfaction or connection. Craving arises dependently on its conditions of something missing, something wrong, so that as we gradually cultivate a felt sense of nothing missing, nothing wrong. It'd be nice to have more. It'd be nice to develop in some way. And there can be a sense of peacefulness, contentment, and love already. As we gradually disengage from the second noble truth of craving, and we increasingly rest in the third noble truth of the easing, even the complete cessation of craving. That's what I call resting in fullness. Um, colloquially, I refer to this as the green zone, in which we're not reactivated, we're not triggered in the resisting of what's unpleasant, the grasping after what's pleasant, or the clinging to what's heartfelt. Resting in fullness. Do you have a feeling of these three so far? Steadiness, lovingness, fullness. There's a lovely teaching from, I believe it's Marpa, one of the great Tibetan adepts, who was looking back on his life of practice. And he said, in the beginning, nothing came. In the middle, nothing stayed. And in the end, nothing left. So, we may not be utterly established in the perfection of each one of these, and yet we can still have a sense. And through gradual cultivation, we can increasingly stabilize ourselves in these ways of being that are also practices more and more fully. So the, I think of the first three as the launch pad. They're fairly familiar. Steadiness of mind, lovingness of heart, and fullness, a sense of enoughness already. Then we head off into the deep end of the pool. So the fourth practice and way of being is being wholeness. What I mean by that, or you could say softening into wholeness, it's accepting oneself fully. As they say in Zen, nothing left out. The conventional mind is compartmentalized and fragmented. It's divided internally. And yet what you recognize in beings who are far along in practice or ourselves when we're in a really good place, we accept ourselves, warts and all. We manage our different tendencies. We regulate ourselves. There's a place for that. But we're undivided. And increasingly, we start to experience uh, consciousness as a whole, including the elements of awareness. And when you start to experience your mind as a whole, there's less and less suffering. Because the structure of suffering is parts struggling with parts, inner conflict of one kind or another. You may have heard me use the jokey example of you see the cookie, it's part. You want the cookie, that's another part. Then a third part comes in and says, no cookie for you. You need to lose weight. And then a fourth 
part comes in, maybe some really nurturing voice. I don't know, Tara Brock's always the nurturing voice for me. Oh, sweetie, it's okay. Just eat half the cookie. You know, right? That's the structure of suffering. Parts struggling with parts. When we go out to mind as a whole, suffering starts falling away. There's a sense of wholeness of being. You're whole. Integrated. The doors are open in all the rooms of the mansion of the mind, including in the basement. Wholeness. Softening into wholeness. And then, the fifth practice, I call it receiving nowness. Right in the present moment. Right at the front edge of now. Receiving it. It feels like receiving. Come really, really close to the present moment, and then you hang out there. There you are. There you are. There you are. Not in the past, not in the future, in the present. There's a teaching from the Buddha that says essentially those who let go of the past and let go of the future have a serene complexion. If you think of it, most of our angsting, most of our stressing involves processing about the past with regrets, resentments, and grievances, or worrying or stressing about the future. Yes, there's a place for, you know, learning from our experiences and making appropriate plans in the present, in the present, in the present. Nowness, feeling of nowness. How close can you come to the emergent front edge of now, and how long can you stay there? And then the sixth practice, opening into allness, one with everything. Not just as an intense, once-in-a-lifetime mystical experience, with or without psychedelics involved, and not knocking it, but as an increasingly stable feeling that your life, your living, is a local expression of everything. There's some quotation, I'll paraphrase it, from John Muir, who says, when I look out there, when we look out, we see that everything is hitched to the universe. There's a way to experience that more and more fully. We start feeling more and more that we really are dependently arising. The sense of self softens. The, The sense of being a contracted, unified I inside that needs to be defended and glamorized and um, served falls away more and more. You just f- start feeling open to others. You appreciate the ways that your life depends on others. The natural world gets more and more included in the sense of identity, even opening out into the whole universe. And you, you start having, and people like Thich Nhat Hanh write so beautifully about this, the sense as he puts it that the cloud is in my tea, and I am in you, and you are in me, and we must wait for each other. You know, it has that feeling to it. Um, maybe because I read way too much science fiction when I was a kid. It was one of my refuges, actually. Uh, it just is remarkable to me that in this moment, actually, we are breathing stardust. Literally, we are breathing oxygen, nitrogen, carbon. Every atom that's bigger than helium was born inside a star, made inside a star, usually as it was blowing up. 
you're all really old. <laughs> it's just crazy. It's like the atoms in our body are billions of years old. We're so old already. Like, I don't know about you, but it's just the idea that my living is dependent upon stars blowing up billions of years ago. And again and again and again. Like, whoa, okay. Anyway, opening into all this. And then the last, um, I kind of want to, well, I call it finding timelessness. And this is the engagement with the transcendental. What the Buddha called the unconditioned. Meaningfully, categorically distinct from ordinary conditioned reality. There is some dispute about this in scholarship, but I think the weight of the evidence is that the teachings that have come down to us make it very clear that what he was saying was that even through profound yogic training and extraordinary experiences, none of them was a reliable basis for the highest happiness a sublime, unconditional inner peace because they all depended on conditions. All those experiences in ordinary reality depend upon conditions. And the breakthrough in Nibbana is to the unconditioned, that which is meaningfully distinct from natural, ordinary reality, which, of course, includes a lot of wild stuff. And this is the territory that people describe in different ways, And if you want to stop at the first six, that's okay. But this is the territory, I think it's very clear the Buddha was pointing to, of the unconditioned, which may have other qualities as well. Perhaps consciousness, perhaps benevolence. People in different traditions ascribe other qualities to the transcendental. Minimally, it's a field of timeless possibility, as he described it, the deathless, the stainless, the, the island in a stream of changes that lead to suffering, finding timelessness. Almost all of us have had a sense of something mysterious, something beyond. I'm not here to convince you of anything. This is an exploration. Minimally, we can have a sense of things that are like the unconditioned. Stillness, spaciousness, and possibility. So, those are the seven. And it's material that I've been exploring a lot these days. You can move your way through them in a meditation. You can come back to them again and again and again. As I said at the very beginning, we rest our mind on what draws our heart. I don't know about you, my heart is drawn to steadiness rather than scatteredness and distractibility, to, to warmth and, and love, to a sense of fullness and disengagement from chasing of one thing or another, drawn to wholeness, drawn to the present now, drawn to a sense of being a local expression of everything. I call it eddies in the stream, a local patterning of allness, and certainly drawn to timelessness, whatever that might be. What's also kind of wild is to explore the ways in which these experiences and as we develop them, these traits of steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, nowness, allness, even timelessness, accessibility to timelessness, to accessibility to the unconditioned. These traits 
are grounded in the living body. Because it is the body, especially its nervous system and brain, that is the local source of this moment right now, of the sensation of the chair, or the sound of my voice, or your thoughts about what we're talking about here. Being made moment by moment by moment in ways that are still not fully understood. And yet it's very clear the correlations are very tight between any kind of experiences and underlying neural, biological, physical processes. That means that we can kind of reverse engineer awakening. Not out of disrespect or reductionism or mechanisticness, but out of gratitude for the for nature and the causes and conditions that are enabling and locally producing the most sublime states of being. And we can start to use our knowledge of how the body is making the mind as skillful means. A little understanding of what the body is doing when people are right in the present moment. What your body is doing when you are right in the present moment. Or what your brain is doing when you feel that the self-world boundary is starting to blur and soften as you open into everything. What could be happening? And through some understanding of that, we can deepen our own practice and embody it from the inside out. So I want to talk about wholeness and allness with a little bit of neuropsychology. And then I'll finish up and we can open up for discussion. Okay? So far? You okay so far? Deep into the pool, whatever. But I think Sylvia gave me permission, you know, what about enlightenment, right? Okay? And as we talk about it, the takeaway very practically is to ask yourself, you know, where are you at yourself with these? Maybe some of them are quite stable for you. Steadiness of mind, lovingness. How about fullness? How about stabilizing more and more a sense, an underlying feeling of peace and contentment and love as the basis upon which the next moment arrives? How about coming more and more into a sense of wholeness or being in the present or really neat, allness, timelessness? Okay, wholeness. So, um, So, when we are neurotically engaged, when I am neurotically engaged, I'm either driven, getting something done, or just kind of spacing out and resenting one thing or another, or getting lost and ruminating. What's happening then, there's a lot of activity in the midline of the cortex, the top region in the midline, when we're involved in task-oriented problem-solving, mostly in the front, when we're spacing out, resenting, ruminating, regretting, worrying, fantasizing, we're in the default mode network, more toward the middle and the back. There's a place for that some of the time. On the other hand, when we come right into the present moment with less sense of self, because that midline activity is saturated with me, myself, and I, right? My 
precious. <laughs> when we drop that and we come into the present, as it is, conceptualizing starts to fall away, sense of self starts falling away, uh, we're in the immediacy of the suchness of this moment as it is, activity in the midline gets quieter, and activity in networks on the sides of your brain get busier, increases, especially on the right side of the brain for right-handed people. And for a large number of left-handed people, it's reversed for some left-handed people. In other words, that's the hemisphere. For most of us, that's engaged in gestalt or holistic processing. And it's the place where we go when we come into the present and we feel a sense of ourselves as a whole. We are undivided. Interestingly, the sense of the whole that I took you through in the meditation the sense of your body as a whole, as a gestalt, as a single unified experience, or the sense of the volume of the room as a whole, or awareness as a vast space. Doing that engages these lateral networks and takes you out of the midline mode. And we can cultivate that as practices, Most people in modern societies, me included, have been deeply trained in midline mode. Call it the doing mode. Um, And there's a famous saying in neuroscience, neurons that fire together, wire together. Conventional schooling, most jobs, entertainment, consuming entertainments of one kind or another, really, really, really fires neurons in the midline. And they, they start wiring together more and more and more. And they develop a kind of inner dictatorship. So it's hard to just drop into being mode for most people and just hang out there. Studies show you put people in an MRI scanner and you give them a little task of just be aware of your breathing or just be aware of these words on the screen, just not getting caught up in any judgments about them or how they might relate to you. People can do that for a few seconds straight. And then they're off, you know, ruminating again. But with training, even college sophomores, when they're trained, can stabilize activation on these lateral networks of wholeness. And a couple other things also activate those networks. Surprise, which is involved in playfulness and delight, that also tends to activate these lateral networks. And there's more stuff about this on my website. You check it out, uh, freely offered, rickhanson.son.net. A lot of useful material here. But that's an example of how there's an underlying bodily basis for these states of being that we're trying to help ourselves live into increasingly. Wholeness. For me, what it's really useful. You know, you, they have a saying, right, in the monasteries, think you're so enlightened, go home for the holidays. Right? So there you are in a meeting or in some kind of situation. Just start being, try to be aware of your body as a whole as you breathe. And you just watch it instantly. You'll start chilling out. Okay. Wholeness. Wholeness. You know the joke about the Dalai Lama and the hot dog vendor? Although it'd have to be probably a vegetarian hot dog. You know, what did the Dalai Lama say to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything. You know, okay. Anyway, that's what he said. So, anyway, oneness. Now, I'm going to summarize a lot of stuff and then open it up for you all. Uh, Several times a minute, 
in ways that are really natural, and they're in the background, so we hardly notice them. Our sense of ourselves in the physical environment, our, our place, we naturally alternate back and forth between what's called an egocentric perspective, in it, which is meant neutrally. In other words, the world as regarded from my point of view, and as it is relevant for this one. That alternates naturally several times a minute with what's called an allocentric perspective, which regards things impersonally as they are as a whole without privileging any perspective inside them. And a way to kind of trick your brain is when you bring your gaze close, that naturally accelerates the egocentric perspective. Because as our ancestors evolved in the wild, the nervous system's been evolving for 600 million years, generally in really tough, often harsh conditions, including our our human ancestors for 300,000 years, and then their hominid ancestors before that, making tools for another couple million years, while the brain was tripling in volume over the last several million years. Whatever is close is really relevant. Friend or foe, you know? Do I eat you or do you eat me? What am I going to do? You can just see the egocentric, the sense of self increases as the gaze comes closer. But if you lift your gaze out, a few meters away, moving toward the horizon line, even above, you'll watch a natural easing of self-centeredness with the tensions and preoccupations that go with that. And there's more of a sense of things as a whole. We can, actually I want to add one more thing, technically in the brain, the processing stream, it's called, of this egocentric perspective, which isn't just visual-spatial, it's also our psyche in relationship to others. That processing stream kind of runs from the back up through the top, through the what are called parietal lobes toward the front. The allocentric stream is probably more ancient, it's simpler, It starts at the back and runs through the temporal lobes. It's lower down. This is important because to be in the present involves engaging networks of attention that are updating what's happening now, now, now. Those networks also run through the lower parts of the brain and they entwine with the allocentric perspective. Which makes sense, because when something happens in the wild, first and foremost, for a second or two at least, you need to get a sense of the big picture. And then you can figure out what to do locally. So as we move more and more into the present, and we allow ourselves to be surprised, surprised, delighted, bemused, (laughs) blown away (laughs) by the next sensation of breathing, or the next movement of the wind through the tall grass or the next person who cuts us off on the freeway, now and now and now, that also tends to move us out into this allocentric perspective. Also, um, these networks that I referred to previously on the sides of the brain that have to do with wholeness, they too, because they're on the sides through the temporal lobes, they too are engaged with and interactive with these allocentric streams. So as we come into wholeness, 
and nowness, that naturally starts taking us into a sense of oneness. Works together. And to finish here, I'm drawing on the work of a man named James Austin, who's a neurologist and longtime Zen practitioner and teacher. And he's trying to understand what in the world happens when people have these sudden awakenings. Kensho or Satori and Zen, non-dual experiences are sometimes called self-transcendent experiences, where the sense of the self-world boundary just drops out. Uh, little sense of self, powerful sense of being connected with everything. He wonders, how could that happen? Technically, I'm going to summarize a lot quickly here, there are, little, there are switches in the thalamus, which is a key switchboard in the brain. There are two of them, one on each side. There are little switches that regulate back and forth, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric. These switches are regulated by a neurotransmitter called GABA, which is very calming and inhibitory. And Austin's theory is that with training in tranquility, through the cultivation of GABA-oriented processing, and through doing things that naturally draw us out, like being in nature, and naturally looking out and being more and more clear that we're connected with everything, that as we do these various practices, we become accident-prone to grace. And then a surprise happens, the frog croaks, or in a famous enlightenment poem, the bottom falls out of the bucket. This nun, Zen nun, I think in the 13th century, was carrying water in a temple in Japan in an old bamboo bucket, and the bottom suddenly fell out, and she was suddenly awakened. And she said in her poem that, you know, Essentially, with this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together as a metaphor for her life. And when the bottom fell out, the moon does not dwell. She was seeing the reflection of the moon in the bucket. And then the bottom fell out. Surprise. And Austin's theory is that when that happens, that switch gets stuck on allness. That switch in the thalamus. Boom. And there we are, connected with everything. We eventually come back, but we're transformed by it all. Point being, again, we don't know for sure the Buddha did not need an MRI. He did not need neurofeedback. Many, many people have gone far, far along the path without being aware of these things. And yet, with a little bit of knowledge, minimally, it can draw us, at least for myself, into a sense of awestruck delight at, wow, the wow of it all. And also, we can start using these as skillful means to serve ourselves as householders with a lot of other things on the plate to move along our own path of awakening. Steady your mind. Warm your heart. Rest in fullness. Soften into wholeness. Receive nowness. Open into allness. And find timelessness. I think these are practices that we can engage for the rest of our lives. And to finish here and then open it up for some discussion, um, I think of my climbing guides and my friends who are farther along than I was, farther along the trail, farther along the path. From time to time they would turn to me and beckon, come on Rick, or 
some of these friends. They're friends. Hanson, quit slacking off. Get going. You know, whatever it might be. But there was an invitation. There was a friendliness to it. I think of the great teachers. I think certainly of the Buddha who had no secret teachings. He laid it all out. And he invited everyone to a fullness of awakening. Uh, these beings are inviting us into their state of mind so that we can inhabit there increasingly. Uh, it's a path of practice. I think it can engage a person for their entire life. It's certainly been engaging me a lot. And it's a beautiful path. And it's available to every single one of us. As the Buddha said, it's a path that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. Okay. Do you have any questions or comments about these seven practices or anything else? Great. If you'll take the microphone, I think they'll bring it to you. And if you keep your hand up, they'll they'll find you right here. Great. Thanks a lot for doing that. Up here in the front? Right here. Thanks. And when you hand it, make sure it's live. It's probably live. Hello? Yep. Thanks. So I don't... Um, I probably struggle through how to form the question, but it has to do with the seventh practice mm. and how that can happen in the body yeah. if the body is conditioned. That's, that's profoundly deep. Profoundly deep. Um, thank you. Uh, so this is my next book. I'm writing a lot about this. This question really engages me. Uh, the first six of these practices, I feel like I'm pretty settled in. You know, I can speak from them. They're not 100% all the time, but I can. I, I feel like I'm an interested amateur on the last one, timelessness, right? Uh, short of God realization, whatever you want to call it, maybe everyone is. All that said, I think what we can do is increasingly have a sense there may not be a transcendental. I'm not trying to argue the point. If there is, though, and the Buddha, I think, clearly asserted the unconditioned, language breaks down because it's outside by definition. It's distinct in some way from it. might be woven into the natural frame. Emptiness and form might be somehow one, and still it's meaningfully distinct. We can cultivate what could be like the unconditioned. What is like it? Possibility is like it. A whiteboard that doesn't yet have any writing on it is effectively unconditioned. It's conditioned in its creation, like our body is conditioned. And yet the field of possibility is infinite. And as our minds, and this is why I think we can imagine what's going on in the brain as we, in the path laid out by the Buddha through the jhanas, and then the formless jhanas, and then cessation. What could be happening as people enter into nibbana, nirvana, or get close to it? What could be happening in the brain? I personally think that plausibly what's happening is that the signals are gradually dropping out. So there's, uh, as signals drop out, nothing is being represented. Biology continues. The brain doesn't die. It doesn't stop. It keeps going metabolically, except this neural activity is nothing but fertile noise. It's a field of unconditioned possibility in the ultimate 
on the edge of dropping into nirvana, and it's like the unconditioned. And maybe in that exquisite likeness, in some way, we become transformed. And I think progressively, and you see this in beings who are really far along, you look at them, it's like the way it seems is like the front of them is living in reality, driving a car, having a conversation, making tea, whatever, while the back of them almost is just rested in unconditioned freedom, liberation, as the Buddha called it, I said, quoted him earlier, that unshakable deliverance, that liberation of mind. So I, I think it's like that. I think we become... You know, as stained glass windows, more and more transparent to the light that was that's always shining through. We live in conditioned actuality, while we can always have an intimation of. And I think people who are very far along are really transparent to that intimation. They're gauzier. My friend, I took a walk with, is really quite gauzy at this point. You know, there's a lot of space between the threads and you just sense something else going on there so and it's an exploration okay great great okay you great thank you and and so for me simply put the cultivation of three things that are like the unconditioned not making the category error that uh, that we think they are the unconditioned uh stillness Stillness around which things move. Spaciousness in which things are. And possibility before actuality. That, those are cultivations. You know? And it may well be as well that as people do, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, there's some stuff along this and then you have the other contemplative traditions of the world, there could well be consciousness as a quality of the transcendental. And so we start to, maybe if you're interested in this, open to a consciousness and awareness that feels somehow distinct from our own. And a third quality that's attributed to the transcendental, and again, this is not trying to convince, it's just respectful inquiry. It's a quality of love, of benevolence, and a kind of love that's not our own. So these are practices we can do. Stillness, spaciousness, possibility, and potentially opening to awareness and love that somehow seems beyond our own. Without, and and always being really clear that my experience of that is not that. My representation of that is not that. And still, there can be a clearing away of the stained glass windows so the light can shine through. And of course, that's what people want to talk about, timelessness. Like, forget the first six, right? You know, talk about the deep end of the pool. Anyway, okay, go on. I'm curious, um, from a neuroscience perspective, touching on a few of the different things that you talked about and actually related uh, loosely to the last question. Um, In some of the aspects of physiologically what we experience when we're meditating, um, whether it be moving through the different phases of meditation, and at one point maybe your foot is numb or in pain. At another another point, those feelings kind of meld into just awareness of your overall body ebbing and flowing in and out of various different states. Um, As well as what you were talking about in terms of the differences between 
our state of mind and consciousness when we're stuck worrying about the past or worrying about the future, but in, the, in those in-between moments when we can kind of just drop in into the present. And the differences in how we feel, both, both you know, in, in terms of intrinsically how we feel, but also physiologically how we feel. Um, I'm curious if you can speak to, again, from the neuroscience perspective, some of the mechanisms that are occurring there and, and maybe the chemical processes that help to explain uh, from a physiological perspective, what what's happening during those transitions? Big question, a lot of interest in it. Um, really, kind of briefly. One, so when I'll just talk about the the transition into, uh, you know, one thing that's happening there is there's just less stress activity. The amygdala, two of them again, the, which is tracking what's relevant. But it's very, very primed due to the brain's negativity bias to react to what's unpleasant. Pain in the knee, preoccupation with your partner, worried about the bills, whatever it might be. And so operationally, one thing we want to do as state and trait, very important point here, distinction between state and trait. States come and go. Traits, the cultivation of beneficial traits is where... That's lasting development. That's durable change, right? Nothing came, nothing stayed, nothing left, but moving from nothing coming to nothing staying and then eventually to nothing leaving. That's a really important transition. So developing both states and traits of greater um, uh, calming, not numbing, but calm well-being, and, and also a sense of calm strength. Strength is really an underrated resource for dealing with threats and disturbances because we get disturbed because we feel out, outnumbered, outgunned, overwhelmed. But when we feel more resourced, then threats come and go, pains come and go, rejections and conflicts come and go, but we're not so disturbed by them. The Buddha had this lovely phrase, so psychological, as he described his run-up to awakening. He said, basically, as I was progressing, very, very painful, terrible feelings would arise, but they did not invade my mind and remain. They did not invade and remain. So we cultivate over time uh, more and more of inner shock absorbers, and as and among which are a sense of spaciousness in which pain comes and goes. Some of people, I know people who are deep practitioners who are living with agonizing, inescapable chronic pain. And their eyes are bright and their their heart is open and they're practicing with inescapable pain. But it's in a great field of spaciousness. So we cultivate that. So so that's a really important thing. Cultivating trait, uh, green zone, deep green. You know, trait peacefulness, trait contentment, trait love, in terms of our three major needs. Safety, satisfaction, connection. Peace, contentment, love. We cultivate that. That's really important. Uh, and neurologically, um, I would reiterate kind of the emphasis on the, the triad. It's really quite something of wholeness, nowness, allness. The three work together. When you feel whole, when you start activating the lateral mode, you're internally undivided. There's a sense of things as a whole. When you're in nowness, engaging the, it's called alerting and orienting, the updating, it's a lower neural network that's engaged with um, 
you know, receiving the present, receiving the present, receiving the present, when you're doing that, and when you have this allocentric network activation, you know, you have more of a sense of being a local patterning of allness. You're the wave, as Jamal Yogis puts it, all our waves are water. He's a surfer and a meditator. Beautiful book. Uh, you know, though, when you're, when you develop trait, when you, you know, cultivate trait, wholeness, nowness, allness, then increasingly you return to your, that resting state more and more rapidly. I think a lot of, as a psychologist and also as a meditation teacher, key question is what's the, what's the rate of recovery? How rapidly do we, do we recover? This side of full awakening, I'm not there yet. Stuff happens. <laughs> you know what I mean? What? <laughs> right? But how fast can you come back? Right? That's the key question. So you cultivate that. And, um, and I think the, the, the neurology of that is, is sound. The, the, the underlying physical basis of wholeness, nowness, allness, working together, it's really something to develop. Okay. Yeah. And one last thing, positive emotion. You know, it's no accident that two out of five of the traditional jhana factors, jhanas being these non-ordinary states of deep absorption, two out of five of them are bliss and happiness. Positive emotion, because positive emotion, that's authentic not based on clinging or chasing, but positive emotion of including contentment and tranquility as well as delight. I mean, gobsmacked, awestruck gratitude. What? I kind of think, if you're not, if anyone's is not resting in awestruck gratitude, you're deluded. Because like, what? The universe, right? What? Even on the worst day, what? Anyway, those, the, the Buddha encouraged those he made bliss one of the seven factors of awakening. It characterizes uh, this particularly the first several of the jhanas. A wonderful feeling. Don't turn away from positive emotion. Actually, as we internalize emotionally positive experiences, internalize them truly, convert them from state to trait, then increasingly we feel filled up from the inside out. Our heart becomes full and it's less hungry and we chase pleasures less and less outside ourselves. All the way in the back. First you, though. Then definitely you. Then we're going to move to an end. Okay, and I'll try to rattle on less. All right. So, um, I, I really appreciate all this, um, the, the neuroscience uh, perspective on these experiences that we can personally have uh, within ourselves. I feel like we are in we're in particularly challenging times, at least in the U.S., particularly with what is happening at the border with the children. And so I have kind of a two-part question, which is from a neuroscience perspective, how do you assimilate the karmic concepts of causality in the sense that there has been injustice and suffering, always, and pain. So do we meditate ourselves and say, we're compassionate, we're whole, we're timeless, all in ourselves, while there are children sleeping, not sleeping, uh, at the border, and we just say, well, that was their lot, this life, and... (laughs) 
you know, and so how do you feel about reincarnation mm. in that sense? And how do we assimilate uh, that in our, that, um, yeah. resolve that, those conflicts within ourselves? Wow. Well, first, briefly, I forgot to say this. If you have any interest in this material, uh, I'm, I have a, I'm actually coincidentally tomorrow morning, I'm doing a free one hour like webinar about it. And there's no obligation. Uh, if you miss it, you can watch the recording. If you want to register for it or, you know, see it, just go to my website, rickhampson.son.net, and I'm going to go into this material also tomorrow in a, in a deeper way. So that's this, I call it neurodharma, but that's what it's about. Okay, that said. I'll speak briefly because I know we're moving to the end here. Uh, I don't, I, I, I do consider, I know something about how the brain works and how to practice with that. The question you're, you're raising, I can report some of the Buddhist teachings about that, but I wouldn't describe myself as someone who has expertise of his own about it. And I have my own personal orientation. So first, um, if you look through the, the, what's called the Pali Canon, it's a canon, it's a collection of teachings passed down orally in the language of Pali, that's the early language of Buddha, uh, Buddhism, or there are analogs in Chinese. There's some early texts that were also in Chinese, and you can cross-compare them. In all those, uh, the Buddha does matter-of-factly speak of reincarnation, of, some, of the ways in which tendencies and um, lessons to learn and also wholesome qualities in some mysterious way outside the natural frame. We're talking supernatural here at this point. Uh, transfer from life to life to life. Whether that's true or not, one question, another question, whether it's it's useful to in practice to uh, engage that or not, another different kind of question. He was really clear about it. He said that is the case. Until the causes of the transfer from life to life to life gradually fade. And they fade not because we seek annihilation, that's not good, he said, but simply because the underlying fuel of those fires, the transfer, let's say from candle to candle to candle, gradually just fall away with you know full development in the path he laid out. That's the way he talked about it. Now, on the other hand, he did not say that, uh, and he did refer to different realms broadly, but he did not teach in the Pali Canon that children are oppressed terribly because of something they did in a former life. That's wrong dharma. Now, some teachers will talk about that, and but that's not what the Buddha taught. He talked about a broad relationship between causes and effects. He did not blame the victim in a nutshell. So for myself, um, then I want to get to you and then bring it to a close, you know. Uh, yeah, it's a deep question. And so, for, and I, I just offer this as a personal opinion. For myself, um, two, one, I am just so struck lately. I have a confession. It's being recorded. Uh-oh. But basically, I, I don't, it's kind of like, I'm, two things are really alive. One, it's like guardrail to guardrail for me these days. One, just a sense of gobsmackness at the universe and allness and like, thank you. Two trillion galaxies. You know, Big Bang, 
Stardust? Wow. At the same time, I'm just blown away by how mean people can be. How bad they can be. How bad we can be. How bad I can be on my worst day or minute, you know? And it's just terrible. So part of me is I'm really moved to do everything I can. And I think others are as well, on the one hand. On the other, to the extent it might possibly be true that my privileges and good fortune that I've had in this life are in some ways the result of the efforts of those folks upstream. Life after life after life have kind of passed on the baton. Now that they handed me this baton, I don't want to suck. I want to do what I can with it to help this this body-mind process. You know, this eddy in the stream in this life develop and grow as much as possible before handing the baton on to the next one. That's real for me. Okay, last person for sure in the back there. Well, thank you for Thanks. the meditation and the Dharma. I got a lot out of it personally. And I really, what really struck me the most is when you said that the Dharma said you can, or uh, sorry, if the Buddha said you can reach enlightenment through love alone. And that's what I find on a daily basis that gets me through, <clears throat> you know, the occupant of Washington and the, the children and the whole thing, it's impermanence is there, right? I mean, things do change, but um, just, I always try to go to love, right? Love can, all that other things really can align when I when I focus on that. So thanks for that reminder. Oh, thank you for saying that. It's quite striking. And if you want a neat book that gets into this, What the Buddha Thought, by a scholar named Gombrich. He's a retired Oxford don of this and that. He's like one of these you know, retired English academics who just has no more reservations, full bore. And it's really interesting, actually, what the Buddha thought. But he, he's the person that I'm drawing from here as a deep scholar who just emphasized how much the Buddha himself really did emphasize a path of love that was unfortunately kind of dropped or pushed to the side for several centuries, which then opened the door to the Mahayana development of the Bodhisattva ideal and the path of loving kindness. Anyway, I just want to express my gratitude to you. Uh, if you're interested in my free newsletters or stuff like that, give me your email address. You can always unsubscribe. I'll never share it with anyone. If you're interested in this material more, um, I'm doing this webinar tomorrow. Maybe check it out. But really, most fundamentally, I'll just leave you with a teaching I got from Joseph Goldstein. Um, I was in a little workshop with him one time, and um, I wanted to check in with him, like, am I on the right track with this experience that was developing for me and stabilizing? And he smiled, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then he paused and said two words I've never forgotten. I'll offer them to you as well. Keep going. Thank you very much. Take good care. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.